Well, that deserves, all right? Wow. That is going to be village church folklore, okay? The, they will tell of the day that John Ortiz, right? Okay. We did this because we knew you all skipped it in your scripture reading plan. You know, that's why, that's why we did this. So, no, after, more seriously, after, after listening to that, you're, you're probably wondering, why are there not more names and numbers in that, in, that, in that chapter, right? Why are there not? Maybe you're wondering, why all of the names and the numbers? And why is it so important? And why did you, why did you do this to us? I, I realize I lost some of you already this morning. Please come back, okay? Why? I think there's at least three reasons in the beginning of our, of our time together this morning. And I think the first one is this, that it reinforces the idea, listen to me, all of God's people are important in God's work. All of God's people are important in God's work of rebuilding and renewing, revitalizing, restoring the life of his people. And in our context and in our day, that is the church. And although for six and a half chapters, this book of Nehemiah has basically been about Nehemiah and all of the great things that he's done, from this point forward, he, he rarely is mentioned actually three times in the rest of the book. Has Nehemiah done some incredible things? Yes. Has God used him in great ways? Yes. But, but maybe God put it in his heart to go back to Ezra chapter 2 to grab this genealogy and essentially copy it and place it in his book because he wanted everyone to know that would read about this story to know that all of God's people are important in the work that God is doing. It reminds us that when God does his work through all of his people, or when God does his work, he does it through all of his people. Not just one of his people, and not just a few of his people, but all of his people, which is the reason why all of the heads of the households are mentioned here, covering over 42,000 people, as Nehemiah is saying, all of them participated, all of them were important in the work, as are all of you. And I believe it reminds us that where all of God's people are included in his work, some really amazing and seemingly miraculous things can take place through them and, and by the power of God. That when all of God's people decide together by God's grace that they are going to follow God and do something and be included in his work, something amazingly and seemingly miraculous happens, and that's what we see happening in verses 15 to 16, where it says, so the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul, in 52 days. At the end of the chapter, it was a big city with broad walls. In 52 days, they did something that they couldn't do for generations. And when all of our enemies heard of it and all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Yeah, of course. You, there's no other way to explain it. And when all of God's people are involved in the work that God is doing, and when they're all united in it, things happen that even the outside world looks in and goes, how in the world did that happen? There's no other explanation. But God did it. But just because God is at work and he's employing his people in his work 
it doesn't mean that there aren't forces at work that are opposing God and are opposing the work of his people. There always have been and there always will be. But the interesting thing here this morning is that we see it happening from people who would profess to be part of the people of God. In verses 17 and 19, it says, Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came from them, the elders of Judah. For many in Judah were bound by an oath to him because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, one of the sons of Era, and his son Jehoniah had taken the daughter Meshulam, the son of Bechariah, as his wife. Also they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent messengers to make me afraid. Sometimes some of the greatest forces at work against the work of God and the people of God come from people who profess to be part of the people of God, but who are more concerned with their social status than God's reputation and renown and his work. And that was true then, and that is true now. But nonetheless, the work of God continues. Because the work of God is fueled by God himself. And God works through his people, yes. And God uses his people, yes. And his work flows through his people, yes. And as they get together, great things are accomplished, yes. But at the end of the day, it's all his work. It's fueled by him. So it's going to continue, even if professing people that say, yeah, I'm part of his people, like Tobiah and the elders of Judah, they're so concerned about their social relationships. It wasn't just about wealth. It wasn't just about him marrying into a wealthy family. It was about him getting connected to the right people, influential people, powerful people. And there are still people in powerful, influential places that are caving to culture to guard their social credit, all the while professing to be part of God's people. But God will continue his work nonetheless. Now when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers and the singers and Levites had been appointed, he goes on to talk about what happened when the work was completed because God's work will always continue because it's ultimately done, again, by and through him. God's not going to stop his work and people that profess to be part of his people that are thwarting him in some ways to save their own social status, that's not going to stop him either. God's work will always continue because God is behind it. And the question I believe for us this morning in Nehemiah chapter 6 and 7 in this section is, what kinds of people will God use to continue his work? What kinds of people will God use to restore his church in this next season? What kinds of people will God use to, to renew and redeem and replant and revitalize his church in this next season in the future? I think there's at least three things this morning. The first one, I believe, comes from verse 5. Where this says, then my God put into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by the genealogy. I think the first thing is this. God will continue to work through people who know him personally. God will continue to do his work through people who know him personally. The leaders that God used to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. Listen to me. They didn't just know about him. They knew him. They didn't just know about him theologically or about him academically or about him 
religiously. They didn't just know about him organizationally, looking at the Bible and seeing, oh, how does God's you know, people get organized to be efficient? They didn't just know him philosophically. Listen to me. They knew him personally, experientially. They knew something of relationship with God. And it started with Nehemiah, but it was meant to work its way out to all of the rest of the people. Beginning with his family, his brother was a very faithful man of God. It's beginning to work its way out to all of the people of God. And if God is going to use us greatly to rebuild and renew and restore his church in the days ahead, if he is going to use us greatly, we need to know him personally, deeply, intimately. And this makes sense, doesn't it? Because there are certain things that God wants done. And there's a certain way that God wants those things to be done. And no one knows that better, look at, than the people that know him the best. I mean, this is the way it is in our lives, right? I mean, if you know me, if you're my friend or you know me well or you've worked together with me in something in the life of the church, you know that there are some things that I'm like, ah, whatever, just, you know, do whatever. And there are other things I'm like, no, I'm not like that. I'm very particular, there are things I want done in the life of this church a certain way. And I can tend to be a little, is controlling the right word? <laughs> I just want them done that way because I have an end in mind. And, and, and there's a way I want it done. I want it to feel a certain way as it's done. And it's important to me. And, and so if we're working together, you know that if you have a relationship with me. And if that's true of you, I know that about you. And, and we know that about one another. One of those things in the life of our church is hospitality. I want people to be welcomed well. I think this just is a good time to pause and say, our hospitality team has done a great job during this season. In our last little gathering after the baptism, like the way the food came out and the ex and all his crew were cooking it and Caitlin and her team, the way every, even everything was presented and everyone got to go. I mean, it was an awesome morning for a lot of reasons, but that was part of it. And that's what I'm talking about. There's a certain way that I like to see things done and we like to see things done in the life of the church. And people that know us know that. Why would it be any different with God? God's a certain way, and, and, and his character is flawless, unlike ours, and there's ways that he wants things done. And the people that know him best know that. You might say, well, I think I have a personal relationship with God, and I think I'd like to know him a bit more deeply or a bit more intimately. Like, how would I do that? If I want God to use me greatly, I want to know him intimately, how do I do that? Well, I think um, we're in the book of Nehemiah, so let's just stick in context of the book of Nehemiah and say there are a few ways that we know that Nehemiah has gotten to know God intimately. In the previous chapters, we know that he's gotten to know God intimately through time in his word, that Nehemiah is a student of the word of God, and next week we're going to see Nehemiah open up the word of God and all the people, they're going to read it and they're going to hear it and they're going to rejoice over it. Nehemiah is a man of the word. God's word is his self-disclosure of himself to us. If you want to know God intimately, spend time in his word. Nehemiah was a man who practiced the presence of God in an ongoing posture of prayer. If you want to know God intimately, practice his presence with an ongoing posture of prayer. He honored the Sabbath. He took time to take a breath and slow down. And that was the point of the Sabbath, is just to get before God with, with no other distractions. Nehemiah practiced Sabbath and solitude. He got alone with God. He put aside other voices, even through books and things like that, just to listen to God's voice alone. 
he had an openness to the Spirit of God when he came to, before God. He didn't just come with his agenda. He came asking what was God's agenda. He had a real openness before God. That's how he got to know God intimately. He actually gave God time to speak. Probably didn't do all the talking. And the last thing is, he wrote this stuff down. Much of the book of Nehemiah is just from his journal entries. Nehemiah spent time in the word and time in prayer and he Sabbathed and he got alone with God and he opened himself up to the spirit of God speaking to him and he wrote down the things he believed God was saying to him so he could come back to them and be reassured. Yeah, that's what God said. I believe that's what God said. You know, the good news for us this morning is that God wants to know us deeply this way as well. And he came to us in the person of Jesus Christ to prove that. And one of my favorite verses in the Bible comes from John 15, 15. It says this, no longer do I call you servants. For a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. That's what Jesus is telling his disciples. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from the Father, I have made known to you. Do you have this kind of relationship with Jesus? Do you have a divine friendship with him? What Jesus wants for everyone for all of his disciples, is this kind of relationship, a, a divine friendship, not just servanthood. And if you're not yet a Christian, by the way, can I just pause and, and tell you, this is one of the differentiators about Christians and about Christianity. If you're not yet a Christian, this is what Christianity teaches, that you can have a relationship with God, that you can know God personally, that God doesn't want, just want something from you, he wants you. God just doesn't want you to do stuff for him, although he does. He wants you to do it with you. He wants to be alongside you. He wants you to be alongside him, rather. He wants you. He wants relationship with you. And we would invite you to Jesus this morning. Is there something you believe God has put in your heart? Do you have a relationship with him where you can hear? You know, thinking about Nehemiah as sort of like the leader in this scenario, I thought to myself this week, I wonder if anyone is going to think, you know, Matt, is there something that God's put in your heart as the lead pastor of this church or in the hearts of all the pastors collectively of this church? Is there something God's put in your hearts for this season in the life of our church? And I'd say, that's a good question. If you're asking it, let me, let me give you two quick answers. One, one is just as simple as, yes, God has put in our heart this desire to grow and multiply disciples who are delighting in Jesus, who have joy in their relationship with him, novel concept, who are declaring the good news about Jesus, who are gospeling themselves and those around them, and who are displaying the life of Jesus, that are showing other people something of the way that he is by the way that they live. That is a deep conviction that we have, and God has put that in our hearts. But let me tell you one other thing that God has put in our hearts as pastors in this season. An unwavering commitment to Christian orthodoxy. Let me say that again an unwavering commitment to Christian orthodoxy. Verse 5 through the end of this chapter is all about orthodoxy. It's all about Jewish orthodoxy. It's, it comes from Ezra chapter 2. In a sense, what Nehemiah is actually doing with all these names in this list, he's saying, hey, when all these people came back, these are the people that did it, and this is how God worked through them, and I'm connecting that to the way that God's working through us. There's a, there's a continuity between the work of God and the people of God. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who come up at the first, and I found written in it, verse 5. 
And, and one of the things that God has put in our hearts as pastors of the Village Church is, is to maintain, to keep continuity within the work of God in the past and the work of God in the present and the future and not to move away from Christian orthodoxy in any way, shape, or form. So there is no social gospel at the Village Church. And there is no overly feminized gospel at the Village Church. And there is no prosperity gospel at the Village Church. And there is no universalist gospel at the Village Church. There's nothing that goes before the gospel because then you don't have the gospel. <laughs> we just are about the gospel that, as Jude said in Jude 3, was once and for all delivered to the saints. Is someone going to say, like, amen, or I'm glad that's the case and just, you know. Because the book of Hebrews says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And actually goes on to say, so, so don't be led away by diverse and strange teachings. As humbly as I can tell you, we believe we know Jesus. And we believe we know his heart. And we believe that, that we're just reading what he's already revealed to, him, to, to us about himself. And it was recorded by people that knew him very, very, very well. Much better than the people that are going wayward today. These are people that knew him, that saw him, that passed it along, that recorded the things that we believe as Orthodox Christians. And we will always believe those things. And we will always teach them. So if you're asking the question, there you go. That's what's on our hearts in this season. Listen, God will continue his work through people who know him personally. And the rest of the chapter in broad strokes will tell us the second thing, and that's this, that God will continue his work through people who serve him faithfully. People who serve him faithfully. The rest of this chapter, in a sense, is broken down into eight categories of people who can serve God faithfully. The first category is the founding leaders. We would call those people like the replanters of the church. There are two leaders who were here when this church was replanted about a dozen years ago. Myself and Pastor Mike are the two remaining pastors who are like, we were here in the beginning when this thing was replanted. Second category is the, the lay people. We would call them the partners in verses kind of 8 to 38. The partners of our church, the members of our church. The third category is the priests. Those are the current pastors of the life of our church. The second generation, Pastor David here was shortly there after that, and then, and then Pastor Darren was here. And then we ordained Pastor JT and Pastor Matt Bowman, and they were ordained together in that next generation. And then the most recent generation of pastors ordained in this church are Pastor Josh and Pastor Sean. And that will happen again and again and again by God's grace until Jesus comes back. That's another category, the current pastors of this church. Then there's the Levites in verse 43. Those are the people that we see as the deacons in our church. The, the Levites serve the priests kind of in the same way that the deacons work alongside the pastors. There's the singers, the worship team. In verse 44, grateful for all of these guys and gals that serve us, leading us into the worship of God's people. The gatekeepers in verse 45. That security team, maybe, you know? I mean, it feels like it. Feels like it. I was going to say the connect team, but the connect team, most of them don't carry weapons. So, you know, it's just like some of you are nervous now. Okay, whatever. All right, uh, number seven, uh, the, the, the temple servants and the servant of Solomon, those are like our serve teams. So the, those servants actually served the Levites who served the priest, and you can kind of see how this all builds. Like this all, these are all the people of God. And number eight, this is a little tongue-in-cheek, and I found a way to put an emoji for the first time in my PowerPoint, but, <laughs> but, but those with questionable ancestry. And if you're a visitor, I just wanted to include you this morning, so like, 
Some of this was about Jewish ancestry and the way that they fit in the people of God, but they were part of the people of God. They're called God-fearers in those days. And if you're not yet a Christian, but you're a visitor and you're a guest with us, like, we want you to be part of the family. They, they just gave them a little while till they could start doing things, and you would understand why that would be. Like, we want to get to know you, and we want you to get to know us. Okay, so, so what's the point of all of these categories of people? I, again, I think, there's, I think there's two points to this. I think the first is that if you want to be involved in the work God is doing to rebuild, renew, or restore his people in this day, listen, it doesn't matter which category you are in. It only matters what you do with it. It only matters how faithful you are where you are. Whether you're a pastor or a deacon or a serve team lead or a serve team member or a partner in our church or an attender or a guest, it doesn't matter where, what you, where you are. It just matters that you're faithful where you are. If you're a visitor, be a faithful visitor. Honestly, if you're visiting our church this morning, get to know our church and decide, would I really want to go to church here? And if you don't, we would love to recommend a church that would be a great fit for you. But, but be an honest guest. Come in and we'll be honest with you. We want to get to know you. If, if you're an attender, a, a, a continue to attend our church. We love you attending our church. You could actually be a partner one day. We would love you to be one of our partners, which is like members for us. If you're a partner, serve faithfully as a partner. Maybe someday you'll help lead a serve team. Maybe you'll be one of our deacons. Some of our partners someday are going to be our future pastors of this church. And we welcome that. But today, be faithful where you are. Last week, I was doing a partner interview with a new partner family in our church. And they were at a, a little smaller church that, that had a lot of leaders, but not a lot of faithful members. And, and they're, they're good leaders, and so their, their church kind of identified them as leaders and said, hey, we want to make you leaders, like, kind of pretty much right away. And, and they said, why don't we just wait for a minute? Like, as we look at it, this church just needs faithful members. There's so many leaders doing things. You just need a base of faithful members. And I say, in the future of this church and, and most churches, most churches are going to need that. We're sort of recovering and rebuilding. And God's been build, actually building this church over this season, which has, by God's grace, been amazing. But we're going to need a faithful base of partners that are faithful to the things that partners are faithful here at the Village Church. So where does God have you today? And are you being faithful there? The second thing is this. What we do or fail to do today in God's work, it will echo for generations among God's people. This has always been true. It was true then, and it's true today. Like there, there are shifting kind of sands in the life of, of the church at large today. And, and those, those changes, some of those things will reverberate for a long time. And, and among the people who, who stay committed to the things that Christians have always been committed to, those things also will reverberate and they will echo for a long time. And the question is, like, what kind of church will our children and grandchildren inherit? Like right now, our youth group is getting ready to return from a youth retreat that they're on and they're finishing up today. They've been studying what it means to be in Christ together. Don't you love that? We need to train up another generation that knows what it means to be in Christ. It's been incredible to be able to host Gather OC with hundreds of college students here on Sunday nights through the last couple of semesters and to see them lead and guide and preach and lead directed prayers and lead worship and pray for one another and, and see God's movement among their friends and their peers because we need to see another generation committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Like what kind of church we will be today will be the kind of church we will be for decades and and we want to be the church that Jesus has always asked us to be.
God will not only rebuild and restore and renew his people through those people who know him personally and, and who serve him faithfully, but there's, there's one other category this morning, and it's this, that God will continue his work through people who give generously. Through people who give generously, and we see that in, in verses 70, 72, where it says, now some of the heads of the father's houses gave to the work, the governors gave to the treasury a, a thousand derricks of gold, 50 basins, 30 priest garments, 500 minas of silver. Some of the heads of the father's houses gave into the treasury of the work, 20,000 derricks of gold and 2,200 minas of silver. And what the rest of the people gave was 20,000 derricks of gold, 2,000 minas of silver, 67 priest garments. There's really three categories of the giving here. And, and there still are. There was the treasury, there was the temple necessities, and, and there was tomorrow. There was the treasury. That, that's, in a sense, cash flow, right? They're giving to the treasury. What does it take to, to kind of do this cash flow-wise so that everything operates well? And by God's grace, I want to be able to, I, I can tell you, we're doing great there. We've got great cash flow, and we're really glad for that. Praise God for that. The temple necessities, which is, which is kind of like the operating budget, you know. They're giving basins and priest garment because the, the temple in that day needed to function, and the priest needed the basins and the garments, and they needed things to do the work of God. They needed to be paid. They needed to be provided for. They needed the place they lived. There's all kinds of things that needed to go on in the life of the people of God in, the, in that day, and it's still the same. And so we also have an operating budget as the people of God, as a church, as a church family, just like your family does. I'll tell you today that um, when this whole COVID season started, our giving actually spiked up a little bit. And, and now it's sort of a little bit below where it would normally be. Not much, but a little bit. But, but spending is actually even lower than that. And so we're, we're kind of doing okay. But as we move into the next season, like our operating budget will need to be what it normally is to do the things that God's called us to do. And then there's really tomorrow. There's the future vision. The entire book of Nehemiah is, is all about God rebuilding his people, reestablishing the city of Jerusalem, not just so that they can kind of be among themselves, but so they could be a light to the nations, so that God could make himself known to the people around them. There's a bigger vision that God has in mind. And that's true around here, too. We're, we're not just worried about or thinking about, rather, like, what is the cash flow like and, and what's the operating expenses? But we're thinking, what does the future look like? How many more church planners do we want to support? And how are we going to get the gospel out to the people in our community? Right now we're actually working on a project for the building to kind of open it up in some ways and make it more welcoming for people and, and give us a chance to adapt in kind of a hybrid kind of way. And, and there's some great plans that are going on for future vision, how we can be the people of God and how we can reach more people for his sake. And this all started with the leaders, but that it included everyone. There was 100% participation. Did you notice that? The leaders went first. And then everyone else gave a certain amount, and, and everyone participated. If every partner in the village church participated in some way in these things, this, this church would never have a need again. If every partner heard what God was placing on their heart to give and, and how to be generous to the life of this church and the things that God's doing in and through it, I'm telling you right now, there would never be another need that would go unmet. I don't know if I can read all this. Yeah, I can. Great. Here we go. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Because you might be wondering, like, how, how do I do that? How, how, do I, how do we be faithful, you know, in, in this generous kind of way in a season that's been so difficult? That's not a new question for God's people. The church in the New Testament was asking that question, and Paul wrote to the church in Corinth and said this. 
The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give what he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, they gave a certain percentage because it was required by law. As Christians, we give a certain percentage or a certain amount because God's placed, he's moved on our hearts to give. And there's a starting point, and it can kind of go on from there. But God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As is written, he is given, distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. So he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. He's saying, if God moves on your heart to be generous in a certain way to his people, the way Nehemiah was and the other leaders and all the people in Jerusalem, then he's going to give you the means to do it. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from the confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them for all this, and for all the others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. That when we give generously, it overflows from our church family to other church families, to other pastors, to missionaries, to people that are proclaiming the gospel all around the world. And Paul ends this section by saying, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Right? He ends by reminding us, oh yeah, Oh yeah, God gave his son. Village Church, we can be these kinds of people. We will be these kinds of people who know God personally, who serve him faithfully, and who give to him generously. And the reason we can and the reason we will as his people is because we follow and serve a God who has already done all of these things himself. And if you're new to us at the Village Church, this is one of the reasons we love Jesus so much because he never asks us to do anything, anything that he's unable or unwilling to do himself. He always goes first. You see, we serve a God who has revealed himself to us. He has made himself known to us in the person of Jesus Christ so that we can know him. He's made himself known to us. He wants to know us and he wants to be known by us. We serve a God who has shown his faithfulness to us in sending Jesus to us so that we can be known by him and we can know him. And he's been faithful, Jesus has been faithful to live the life that we could never live, a sinless life before God so that we can have an opportunity to be reconciled with God when we place our faith and our hope and our trust in him, when we believe and, and trust the perfection of Christ's life for us and, and the substitutionary death of Christ for us on the cross. And we serve a God who, who showed us his generosity by giving his son to us and for us. God has made himself known. God has been faithful to us. God has been generous to us. The book of Romans tells us, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things? I mean, this is connected to our good news this morning, which is something like this. That Jesus has made himself known to us and faithfully lived his life for us and generally, generously given himself for us. 
And because that's true, we can know him. And we can be faithful to him. And we can be generous to him. Because he's first been all those things to us. Would you pray with me? Lord, we want to be the kind of people that that you use to rebuild and restore and renew your church. We pray that you would empower us by your spirit to be these kinds of people. With your heads, your hearts bowed this morning, um, I just want to to lead you through just a a short, directed prayer and ask you to think about a couple things and talk to God about them for a minute this morning. This morning we talked about the idea of knowing him personally. Which one of those things on that list do you sense may help you to know him more personally, more deeply, more intimately? Maybe you want to tell him if if you need more time in his word. Maybe it's a posture of ongoing prayer. Maybe you know you just need to Sabbath and rest and slow down. Maybe you need some solitude just to put aside all of the other voices besides his. Maybe it's coming to him and asking what his agenda is, not just coming to him with yours. Maybe you should write some of these things down. We also talked this morning about serving him faithfully. Is there one thing that he might impress upon you this morning, one way you may serve him more faithfully? Just right where you are. Wherever you are today, whatever quote-unquote category you find yourself in, whatever place you find yourself in the midst of his people, is there a way he might call you to serve him faithfully there, more faithfully there today? This morning we talked about generosity. Has he placed something on your heart? Is there a way that he's called you as to be more generous to him and what he's doing through the life of his church? Lord, you have been faithful to us. You've made yourself known to us. You've been generous to us. And so we respond in humble and joyful worship. And we do it in your name and for your sake, Jesus. Amen.